What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Nerd Alert with Dan and Dean. Uh, last month, <laughs> it's been a couple weeks, the holidays. Last month, we talked about LIGO, which was the what, Dean? The laser inferometer that is in both Washington and somewhere else. I can't remember. Gravitational anymore. Wave Observatory was the rest of that acronym. Oh, yeah, sorry. It's in... Yeah. Uh, well, you should listen to the episode to see where it is. I can't remember off the top I probably of my head. should. You're right. Yeah. Uh, well, that was a really interesting conversation. And um, this is probably going to be our last episode for the year. I think episode number 12. Uh, this week, we're talking about something a little uh, different than gravitational waves. We're going to be talking about music media uh, or different music mediums, I guess you could say. Can you say mediums or media? Or is it always just media for the plural? Well, if you have two numbers in the middle of something they're both mediums true good point uh well that's what we're talking about today and this was a request i guess a recommendation from one of our listeners i won't uh reveal their secret identity but they they reached out to us and said hey you guys should talk about this and we thought that actually sounds like a great topic so we're going to be talking a little bit about different ways that we've kind of we as a society have sort of stored and um preserved music over the years and we've actually seen quite a lot of this change happen you know over the last few decades like in many of our lifetimes we've seen this evolution happen just over a few short years but it goes back pretty far and i thought it was pretty interesting to see um how far back humans have been trying to find ways to basically store music right would you agree yeah um and i i think the whole idea sort of gets split um into these four major categories, the acoustic era, the electrical era, the magnetic era, and the digital era. And obviously now we are in the digital era. But I think all of that should really uh, sort of be prepended with early music notation, right? And I mean early, like, ancient societies. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I could find is that the the Hurrian songs are sort of this collection of almost complete musical notation that's actually inscribed in cuneiform, which if you remember, I don't know, maybe sixth grade, yeah. cuneiform on these tablets was almost like hieroglyphs, sort of. Was that the first written language? Uh, or one I, of the early written languages? Outside of like cave paintings? Right, I, right, right. I, I think yeah. so. Um, yeah. Uh, so these Hurrian songs, the, these tablets were found in this ancient city of Ugarit, which is in like what is modern day northern Syria. Um, And they date back to about 1400 BC. So they are old, old. Um, One of these tablets, uh, this is really what they're named after, uh, contains a Hurrian hymn um, to this god Nikal, N-I-K-K-A-L. And this hymn is also known as simply just H.6. This is sort of renowned and widely regarded as the oldest surviving, you know, largely complete work of music that exists on the planet that we have found. But, I mean, that's just as far back as we have found. Perhaps it goes back even further. Um, but in terms of more completeness, ancient Greece was also, you know, they were fairly musical, hopping around in Athens, probably not in Sparta, but mostly in, uh, in Athens. Right. You know, dancing and singing. So the ancient Greeks used musical notation as well. So that's like, you know, call it 6th century BC, maybe 4th century BC, something like that. Yeah. Um, and there, there's one complete composition 
called the Sikulos epitaph. Um, and th there are a bunch of other fragments that we found, but this one is complete. It is the oldest surviving complete musical notation um, that we know of. No, that's really interesting. And I guess it's not too surprising when you think about just mankind and society that one of the earliest things that would be kind of, I guess, creating culture would be things like music and song and sort of like ex expressive uh, like interaction between different people. And we were actually talking about that before, like when we picked this topic of how far back are we going to go? Are we going to, you know, just go back to like you know, the record player or something like that? And, and we were like, well, probably even as far back as like written song, because when you think about it, writing down the notes or some interpretation of the music such that someone could read it and kind of reproduce it really does kind of represent like the earliest music medium. It's just um, one that you have to kind of participate with to uh, to get it out, I guess, right? Right. And I guess if we're really stretching the definition here, you could go back even further and say that, you know, like there are animals that teach songs, not like oh, yeah. in English or in Latin or anything, but, you know, right. that there are songs that animals know of and there are songs that ancient tribes sing and pass down verbally they were never actually written so if voice counts as a medium yeah. then there that's as old as let's it count it why not sounds good so we go from vocals to you know cuneiform right to you know ancient greece now you're, you're probably writing on some kind of paper mm -hmm. uh, probably a little bit more advanced than papyrus but you know some some form of early paper and paper right. has persisted even to the modern day Right? Yes. Sheet music. Of course. Um, I can't read it. I know a lot of people that can. You can read sheet music. Um, I used to be able to. It's been it's been a while. It's one of those things, like, I think if you took the time to, you know, tease it apart, I could do it. But I don't think I could do it in any kind of practical oh, way. Oh, yeah, anymore, no. You know? Yeah, if you gave me an hour, I could tell you what it said. <laughs> sure. But you can't expect me to look at it and play yeah. it at all. But anyway, so that th that's the, you know, early music notation. But when we get into these different eras, we're really starting in like 1877. Um, and it really goes from 1877 to 1925. And we'll sort of explain why these dates are are, are what they are. Um, but this acoustic era is really sort of driven by practical recording of analog um, sound, right? And these are done entirely with mechanical devices. Uh, these recordings typically... Uh, have like a, a big horn, almost like a funnel, um, and then some kind of focus at the end and a membrane where there's almost like a pencil at the end. So when you blow sound into the horn, it concentrates on this little diaphragm, mm -hmm. and then the little pencil at the end starts writing. Sometimes right. it writes on paper. Sometimes it etches into uh, you know wax or into metal or something, but that, that's sort of the idea, and it's not always a pencil. Sometimes it's like a... A stylus or something like that. Right. Um, but the idea is to physically etch in or scratch in the, the, the analog sound waves. These early recordings are, are very lo-fi, and by lo-fi, I mean low fidelity. They generally were, were pretty low volume and capture relatively small uh, bandwidths or, or a, a relatively small band of frequencies. Mm -hmm. um, so musicians, engineers they sort of had to adapt to those, you know, audio limitations. And this was not just music. This was also, you know, voices and just any kind of audio recording. 
So when you listen to some of these, or you know, I guess really after they've been digitized and now we can disperse them when you listen to them, right. uh, people kind of had to really manage how they uh, physically were oriented around these recording devices, around the horn, so that everyone could get some of their sound angled into the, you know, into the pass. Otherwise, yeah. you know, the, the guy sitting all the way on the right, you know, playing the violin, his sound waves are not getting into that horn. They straight up will not be recorded. Or if you're not playing loud enough, they will not be recorded. So it was sort of a, a combination of uh, you know, frequencies, volumes, and you know, physical position in the room. A similar example for that is when you look at something like an orchestra, where you know you don't have just one violin player and you know fifteen uh, percussionists. You need to usually have, you know, more of those strings players. You need to maybe have more woodwind players than brass players because of the different characteristics of the sound and how it travels. And that's just a good example of how you're kind of physically, yeah, controlling for those discrepancies. And it's the same with recording. You're totally right. Today, we're kind of spoiled in studios by you can use these very specially designed microphones. You can position them in very specific and specially engineered rooms, and you can kind of really control your environment because of how precise the physical devices are these days. But back then, it just wasn't, it wasn't like that um, in, the, in those earlier days. Right. So after the, uh, the acoustic era comes the electrical era, right? 1925 to call it 1945. Now this is sort of the second generation of audio recording. Um, and this was really uh, you know, brought about by the introduction of these integrated systems, Right, new electronic systems like microphones or signal amplifiers or you know uh, you know truly electromechanical recorders. Mm -hmm. um, this sort of really got ad adopted by the music industry, like you know major U.S. record labels in like 1925. At this point, audio recording became a, a fairly uh, hybridized process. Right, so instead of just simply you know, you point your instrument at this device and it records you, boom, we're done, it's over. Um, now there's, you know, a, a little bit uh, more complicated of a process, right? You have to capture the sound, you have to amplify it, you have to filter it, you have to balance it. This is like, you know, early mixing. And this was all done electronically. But the actual recording process was still more or less mechanical. Um, the, the signal's still physically inscribed into some kind of like master like master vinyl or ma master metal disc or something mm -hmm. um, but the mass produced ones could be something else you know like like right. vinyl for example this type of electronic system uh, really increased or Im improved rather the the fidelity of sound recording so rather than everything being lo-fi all the time now you were starting to get into like that you know high fidelity that the the hi-fi era where you can sort of increase the reproducible frequency range so that you know, band of frequencies that can actually be recorded is now substantially wider, um, which lets you capture you know, more detailed uh, sounds, more balanced sounds. Um, you can set up multiple microphones and start you know, having like multiple channels mm -hmm. through these amplifiers and compressors and mixers and filters and whatnot. Um, and it also, I guess, in my eyes, one of the big important things here is that if you look throughout the history of music, this is when um, more quiet instruments started to become recorded 
more uh, more prominently because they physically and I mean physically could be recorded now. Right. Right. Now you can get you know little flutes or you know some something that would typically have a, a much uh, tone is not the right word um, a much lower volume. Right. Um, can be recorded and then you know mixed in with a bigger band. Um, so it could fit in with those naturally, you know, the, the horns and the woodwinds and whatnot. It also started to enable new kinds of mixes and combinations of instrumentation and expression that you just couldn't really have before, to your point. Like, you couldn't necessarily have like a, like to use the flute example, you couldn't necessarily have a flute that was sort of the main melody and like hook of the song um, while also having like a big drum kit and all that kind of stuff going on in the background because it just wasn't possible to balance them in the right way. Whereas today you can boost the flute, you can mix the drums, like you said, you can use compression, you can use all these different techniques to kind of um, wrangle the sound and the, the characterization of the audio. And it's really cool. It's opened up a whole new world of kind of different um, different expression and it's something that since we started talking about this episode, I've kind of noticed when I'm listening to the radio or something about how you can kind of break down the song and really hear what the main layers are of that song and how that's made possible really by a lot of modern um, techniques. So it's kind of cool. Um, should we go back to, you said around 1877 was kind of the beginning of a lot of these, um, you know, the, the story. And I think that's a pretty important date because of um, our good friend Thomas Edison, who you may have heard of before. I think a lot of people have heard of him. And his invention of what I believe is considered the first phonograph, um, the tinfoil phonograph specifically. And this was the first recorder that could actually play back music. Um, it's also called a gramophone. And since like the 1940s or so, it's been kind of called a record player. So as you mentioned, it's basically a device for kind of the mechanical uh, and analog recording and reproduction of sound. And what they do is they really convert a sound vibration waveform into a physical deviation or ridge in some kind of spiral groove. And this can be done by, you said, engraving, etching, uh, incising, or impressing this into the surface of some cylinder or disc that we usually call a record. Uh, the sound recreation is that you take that stylus or needle, you trace it in the groove and that vibrates it. And this sort of faintly reproduces that sound. And then you also talked about the diaphragm that produces those sound waves that put it into the air and amplify it. And that's really what all these uh, music media are, which I think, I, I don't think I appreciated the um, similarity of before, which is you're taking these physical waveforms that exist in the world and you're finding a way to um, denote them, basically, in some way, shape, or form. And then you're finding a way to reread that annotation, whatever it is, and spit it back out the other way as like a physical sound wave again. So it's kind of cool. Um, and that's how it worked early on. And can I add one more thing before I uh, turn it over? I thought it was pretty funny uh, reading the story, like the theatrics of how Edison sort of uh, released this into the world. I think it was December of 1877 um, was when the, the phonograph was officially revealed. So someone walked into the editor of uh, the Scientific American, which is a magazine journal, right? Placed a small device down, turned a crank, and, and the device said, Good morning. How do you do? How do you like the phonograph? 
um, which was, you know, kind of pretty groundbreaking at the time because no one had any idea what something like this was. Uh, there was also a music critic at the time, Herman Klein, um, who described an early version of that machine uh, in about 1881 um, that it sounded to his ear like someone was singing about half a mile away. So there was some improvement to be made in the design. It was You talked about low fidelity. It was like, yeah, I can kind of tell what's going on, but it kind of stinks at the same time. But like for the time, it was extremely groundbreaking. Without a doubt. So that was 1877, right? And Thomas Edison gets credited with a lot of inventions, and I think he gets tied up with a lot of uh, contentious discoveries, um, perhaps. But yes. let's, let's actually predate him and go to Paris in 1857. Um, there was a man, I don't have a Parisian accent, but I'm going to call him Edouard Leon Scott de Martinville. That okay. is my very American way of pronouncing his name. Um, he actually created the first machine capable of capturing sound. It could not and did not have the capability to play that sound back. Oh, interesting. But it did have a way to capture it. Um, and it was basically what I described before. It was a horn um, fitted with a diaphragm on one end. Um, sound waves, you know, go um, you know, through the horn, hit the diaphragm, changes in pressure, um, make this stylus at the end move and scratch you know, whatever the sound waves are into paper. So devil's advocate question, how could we tell that he was actually doing this correctly or meaningfully if you couldn't actually play it back and hear it? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. In today's I believe day that it was age, probably, it sounds like a pretty similar so premise. What so. he did was a, it was record a physical representation of sound waves. Okay. So a hundred years later, 150 years later, um, when digital music became, you know, on the, or when digital music really entered the scene, um, this group digitally converted the machine that um, Martinville created, which was called a phonautograph. Okay. Um, and the first thing that he recorded was A Claire de la Lune. Right? So this big group, hit back in the day. Oh, very, very French. Um, this This <laughs> digital media group took that physical recording on the phonograph, digitized it, and then played it back. Oh, that's cool. Um, that is now actually considered the earliest recognizable record of the human voice. Wow. But it was not actually, uh, you know, playbackable when it was recorded. So it's a, okay. a, a little bit up in the air. Um, yeah, so it, I guess Paris was sort of a, a, a hotspot for audio engineering before it was called oh, that's that. that's cool. In 1877, so again, the year that Thomas Edison sort of declared that he had the, the, the phonograph, right, his invention, there was a man by the name of Charles Cross um, who invented what he called the paleophone. Hmm. Um, this was almost identical to the to Edison's phonograph. Really? Um, was there like a patent war so or anything? Cross actually wrote a paper describing his thesis and submitted it in a sealed envelope to the Academy of Sciences in April 1877. Hmm. Thomas Edison didn't actually do anything um, in, in terms of filing until I think it was either November or December or the same year. Um, but Kroos was only an idea. He didn't have a physical prototype. Edison actually made one. Yeah. Um, so this is all to say that everyone knows who Thomas Edison is and he is... You know, regarded as the inventor of the phonograph. But there is actually a guy that uh, has that idea written down and documented beforehand, but he is largely uh, fallen by the wayside. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's definitely not the only time that that's happened in history. And I think 
Edison, again, whether you believe in him or don't, I think he understood the importance of being the first to do it, you know, being the one who people remembered doing it. There's a whole, you know, conversation and example of that to be had with him and Tesla and AC versus DC power and all this kind of stuff. So, um, it's kind of a, a good example. Yeah, it was it uh, you know, contentious. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, so that was 1877. In 1881, and again, you had mentioned that Edison's uh, phonograph was on, on tinfoil. Um, in 1881, uh, these two men, Charles Tainter and uh, Chinchester Bell, mm-hmm. um, who were working under Alexander Graham Bell at Bell Labs. Um, right created the graphophone which is exactly the same thing as a phonograph except instead of using a tin wrapped cylinder it used a wax cylinder um, oh, so it was basically exactly the same idea uh, it just sort of improved on the the physical medium on which you are inscribing those um, those audio sounds and then and i, I should say that can both, i make another point on the, the medium means, that you're using which is kind of a double-edged sword on one hand, you want something that's kind of malleable enough that you can input the physical characteristics of the sound, but, but that also want, means it's probably not going to hold up very well. You don't want to be able to hold a lighter to it and have right. it disappear. You need exactly. it to be pretty robust, especially because we talked about this in the last episode about how like, when you're interacting with something, you're changing the nature of it. And every time you listen to whatever that record material is... There's a chance that you're physically starting to actually deform it. So yeah, it's just another comment on like the fidelity conversation. It's it's not just how accurately can you capture it, but it's also like how well can you preserve it? Right. No, that, that that's absolutely a fair point. Um, I, I don't know how well tinfoil holds up. Doesn't um, sound like it would it work very doesn't, well. Doesn't uh, wax was apparently a a pretty big deal in terms of a change. So if wax is storing stuff better than Tinfoil probably really sucks. Yeah. But whatever. So that was 18, eight, uh, sorry, 1881 with Alexander Graham Bell. And then in 1887, so I should step, uh, take a step back, both the phonograph and the graphophone, they were inscribed on a, a spinning cylinder. In 1887, Emil Berliner basically took the idea, and he th- kind of thought it was a joke. He thought it was going to be a toy. Um, he took that cylinder, turned it on its side, and then compressed it. So it became a very flat disc. Oh, okay. And instead of inscribing along the side of the cylinder, he started inscribing on the flat faces. This was the precursor to what would become a CD, or really what would become a vinyl. Um, So that was 1887. And then in 1898, Vladimir Paulson um, invented the telegraphone. The telegraphone is actually important because it, it was like the, the first real magnetic recording that was demonstrated at the uh, at, at the 1900 World Fair, I believe, is where he finally presented this. That's cool. Um, and he had the chance to record the voice of Emperor Franz Joseph of Austria, um, which is widely regarded as the oldest surviving magnetic audio recording. That's cool. And magnetic audio re- recordings would become a lot more relevant in terms of like mainstream consumer use 
a few decades later, which we'll talk about in a, right. in a few minutes. So that was 1898, you know, finally got to unveil it in 1900. And then nothing really changed for like 25 years. Yeah. Everything was pretty stagnant. Prosperous even. Prosperous even. Right. So everything was pretty stagnant for, you know, a a good 20, 25 years. Um, And then in 1924, Bell Labs uh, sort of patented the, the ERD, the electrically recorded disc. Um, and this was a huge leap forward. Bell Labs kind of uh, helped develop Western Electric, um, so that, that their whole recording system, which is basically an electric version of the flat disc. And this whole process used a, a microphone connected to a, an amplifier, connected to an electromagnetic cutting head, um, and recording really improved audio quality across the board, everything. Uh, expanded the range of frequencies, you know, was able to pick up on, on more uh, you know, nuanced volumes, things like that. Mm-hmm. So for the first time, uh, instruments at both the high and low ends of the audible spectrum could be recorded. Um, some people obviously have better hearing than others. Uh, oh, yeah. They probably have better hearing than me. But in terms of uh, what humans are supposed to be capable of hearing... Um, this was the first time that that entire range of frequencies was able to be, um, you know, captured. Uh, these discs were initially constructed using rubber, uh, hmm. but eventually shellac became the the, the medium of choice. Um, and 78 revolutions per minute was the standard playback speed, and that actually you know kept for a while. The first recording issued to the public right, was November 11th. 1920 of the funeral service for the unknown soldier in Westminster Abbey in London. Oh, wow. Um, So there are actually some pretty like big deal changes that happened at big deal times, like things that I I certainly didn't put two and two together. I thought it was pretty interesting. So that was 1924. Let's skip forward four years to 1928. This is when magnetic tapes come into play. So these were at least the Credit goes to this man, Fritz Flumer, P-F-L-E-U-M-E-R. He developed magnetic tapes for sound recording in Germany. Uh, and these tapes became, and I mean, they are physical tape, like, like a cassette tape has, has that real look tape right. in it. These tapes became pretty widely used over the next decade, almost two decades, um, where many people, at, at least throughout Germany, were adopting this by, you know, 19, mid-1930s, 1935, 1937. Okay. Um, but in 1927, uh, after he was sort of experimenting with different materials, he, he sort of decided to coat a really thin paper with iron oxide powder. And this uh, you know, resulting stuff looked like tape. And he eventually got the patent for that in 1928. Um, and recorded his first thing on December 1st, 1932, where he granted the rights, basically, to to use that recording to whomever can find it. Oh, that's cool. I'm going to skip back to where we were talking about these these musical eras. Um, So the magnetic era is sort of defined as 1945 to 1975, and we're Mm -hmm. almost there as as we're talking about these, these different instruments to capture instruments right um so this this is the third you know era in terms of audio recording began 1945 when the allied nations gained access to this new german invention Hmm. right remember this guy was german yeah um 
So this magnetic tape recording. Flumer um, had had sort of been working on this for mo- for for a while. Uh, he sort of was working with this different magnetic wiring from Denmark, but basically this technology had not really left Germany okay. until the end of World War II. Um, so after you know the Allied powers uh, sort of defeated the Axis powers, mm-hmm. magnetic tape was one of the things that actually came out you know globally as a new technological advancement for everybody. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, it was actually pretty interesting. Um, and then from 1950 onwards, this tape became you know, much more efficient, cheaper, um, became sort of the, the standard um, for any kind of audio mastering or, or recording or anything. It's very hi-fi. It brought about a pretty radical, I guess, reshaping of the recording process yeah. um, because recordings could then be a lot longer. And also a lot longer fidelity because now you're simply limited by how much physical tape you could put on a reel. Yeah. Right? Um, so these are things that just simply could not be handled with disc type recordings. Right? And eventually, you know, for discs, there was a front and then a B side. Right. Um, but with tape, you could just, you know, take a five foot section and make it 10 feet and you suddenly double it. You can't, and, and the same instrument to play it back. Um, was still usable, whereas for a disc, you'd need to physically change the thing that is you know, uh, reading the vinyl. Um, so that that's more or less what that magnetic era looks like. Yeah, and, uh, you know, thinking about magnetic tape, you mentioned it being an important part of the recording process and recording audio. And... Yeah, but I have no idea how it actually works. I just assume that people know what they're talking about. Well... I think it stayed mostly the same for quite a while. And obviously, like, cassette tapes come into the picture from, like, a consumer standpoint, right? Like, the, the tapes that we're talking about, I don't know, if you imagine, um, like, if you've seen, like, an old TV show or a TV show that's, like, set in the, you know, 40s, 50s, it's, like, a pretty big device with a big spool of tape, almost like a film spool, like a reel, I guess, basically. Um, but the process of actually using them is still pretty consistent. So... As you mentioned before, you're basically taking some electromagnetic induction to convert some electrical signal voltage and using that to create a magnetic representation or imprint on the tape. And you're basically realigning the magnetic particles in the tape. I think today or, you know, more recently, it's some kind of ferric oxide that they use um, to actually coat with these particles. So the recording process is kind of cool. You uh, use the record head. Uh, And that's the most important piece. It has a series of magnets um, that can apply focused magnetic flux. And you can think of magnetic flux as like the intensity of the magnetic field that's moving through an area on the tape. So this happens as the tape and as the signal are coming in. So the tape has to be kind of moving real time uh, as this process is working. And so the way that it works is it captures the positive and negative swings of the waveform, essentially imprinting that pattern of the waveform as a magnetic representation via the particles and by changing the magnetic flux proportionally to those swings in the signal. One limitation of the tape, I'm sure there are a few, but one of them is that the level of polarization or magnetization is ultimately related to the strength of the signal. So something quiet will only partially change the magnetic domains and do so with less fidelity. So there's sort of more decay or could be more you know, influenced by outside input. But conversely, if the signal is very high, 
um, you get an effect called clipping, and that's sort of when the tape gets oversaturated and you kind of lose the resolution, basically, of the sound that's coming in. Um, so it's sort of like the waveform is a little bit too big for the space it has to fit in, and that leads to distortion um, when you get playback. And playback um, kind of works just the opposite. It converts a magnetic signal to a voltage, and the conversion rate depends on the IP or the inches per second speed that the device reading the tape back in. So most industry standards are about 15 IP or 30 IP. And 30 IP gives better higher frequency response, but it's not as affordable. There's another interesting problem with tape. I don't know if you saw this. One of the interesting problems is nonlinearity of the signal depending on its strength. So oversaturation causes distortion, but there's a rough range in which the signal is not quite strong enough and may result in inaccuracies. And this can produce something called third harmonic distortion. Harmonics in sound in general, they're kind of like extra layers or characteristics to a sound itself that are a byproduct of the sound. So there's kind of an analogy. I saw this online. I thought it was a great analogy. Uh, a great analogy of skipping a rock on a pond. And this is courtesy of Joe Nab from Vocal Nebula on YouTube. You should definitely check out that channel. As the rock skips further away from you, you get smaller and smaller splashes. These extra layers on top represent harmonic additions on top of your fundamental frequency or kind of what that baseline audio signal is. And those harmonics are part of what gives sound richness and depth the way uh, to get around this though for tape um, is to use what's called a bias level when you're recording. So basically you need some level of background signal that kind of loosens and primes those magnetic regions uh, in the different domains on the tape so that they're a little bit more malleable and flexible to lower signal, which improves the linearity um, and thus your ability to actually capture those signals. I thought it was really cool. I honestly had absolutely zero idea how tape worked, um, but that's basically the process. And again, you mentioned like once it became globalized, there's there's been refinement and learnings of these techniques. You know, these are like what we know today, but it took years to kind of figure some of those things out. So uh, I thought that was really cool. I find it amazing that people do actually figure this stuff out. Right. And that other people are like, oh, that's a really good idea. It's like, what? <laughs> Yeah, it, it's it's absolutely mind-boggling. Okay, so you just explained to me how, how tape works. Um, and by that tape, we're really talking about the technology that goes in some of these older, you know, like magnetic tapes, but also right. cassette tapes, right? Yeah. Because it's basically the same stuff. Exactly. Cassette um, tapes are just a more widely distributed right. snapshot of it. And, and tape can still be used today in recording, just to, to go back to that. Like... Some studios, I think it's kind of analogous to um, some directors, many directors will still shoot on actual film, right? They won't make movies digitally because there's kind of a richness in film. And that's a big kind of debate among audiophiles and people who are very passionate about the fidelity and the characteristics of their sound, right? You hear this a lot with people talking about vinyl versus digital and so that whole debate on like the medium you use inherently influences the characteristics of the thing itself. So sorry, I just wanted to Yeah, no, that, that, that's that. absolutely right. Um, I think one of the, the big things that we sort of skipped over in between the popularization of magnetic tape uh, in like 1928 and the cassette tape uh, is probably what, God, I hope the kids out there these days know what a vinyl is, um, but an actual record right of, of vinyl right and when i was a kid i mean this was like 
my parents had them and they were prized possessions because they were so cool. Oh, they're and, very cool. I mean, they're they're great and they sound awesome, but you need a record player. It, it's it's just it's simply a different medium, right? They're very right. collectible. Um, I don't. I mean, some of them are are relatively cheap, but some of the you know actual originals when they were pressed are insanely expensive to get a hold of. Yeah. Um, so these were first introduced in 1948. Um, and they were actually invented by Columbia Records, which is a name that is still huge in the audio scene today. Um, so the, these uh, vinyl records uh, had these kind of really small micro groove plastic uh, at 33 and a third uh, revolutions per minute, which increased the play length of you know some of the older like shellac record things um, from from five minutes to like 21 minutes per side. Right. So now all of a sudden, instead of five minutes on you know a, what looks like a record, you can get 42 minutes total, right? Which is absolutely insane in, in terms of just playback length. Oh, yeah. So at this point, bands could now start recording you know, longer play albums. LPs. Um, ex- exactly. Or even full-length albums. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I listen to a lot of you know long songs. Yeah. Um, so maybe you could fit four or five on there, but it, like the Beatles, they, they could fit like two whole albums right. on one physical record. It totally changed the way that musicians thought about the music that they made. It's interesting because I think a lot of this stuff like in the, in the arts is a little bit cyclical. Um, we went from, you know, singular um, compositions and songs to records to now we're kind of getting back to like singles again in some ways right like i think people are releasing a lot of singles so it's just kind of interesting but you're right it really enabled a new way to think about making music and another thing i wanted to add when you were you know kind of joking like wonder if kids today know know what vinyls are so um vinyl sales started to decline uh, pretty rapidly as we got into like the 80s and 90s and you know cassette tapes we'll talk about cds in a minute were kind of big reasons for that cassettes were just more um transportable like you could have a ton of them in your car it'd be kind of hard to be like and they were trying cheap to set to manufacture yeah cheap to manufacture cds entirely different thing we'll talk about in a second um but we've actually seen quite a resurgence in vinyl in recent years so um since 2000 from 2006 to about at least 2021, there was consistent growth in vinyl sales. And in 2021, a total of 41.7 million vinyl albums were sold, which is up by over 50% from the previous year. So people are very passionate about vinyl. I don't know. Did you know that? I, I had an inkling that I, if you asked me, I would have said vinyl sales have been increasing of late. I never in a million years would have guessed by that much. So I would say probably half of like my friends, like people our age, I know have record players and at the very least collect vinyl. Like, I mean, I, I have some and I don't listen to them that regularly um, just because it's obviously so convenient to just pop something open on your phone. But it's uh, there is that collectible aspect. Like you remember looking at like CD sleeves and like you kind of like look at the artwork and like look at the lyrics and the track list. There's something kind of cool about the physical medium. I think that's what a lot of people are drawn to. A lot of people really claim like superior quality, that sort of stuff. But anyway, I think it's interesting talking about it being cyclical. We're just seeing like a weird 
resurgence, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I wonder how much of that has to do with the actual quality versus the nostalgic factor of a collectible. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. I I definitely wouldn't say it's better quality. I personally just don't think that's true. Well, I think statistically I think it, and like by the specs of you know the the audio sound digital audio is better than a vinyl right you get a lot more clarity there's just you have the ability to capture so much more dynamic range but you know listening to like lincoln park hybrid theory on vinyl which i have it's cool it sounds and it sounds very different you really hear like the original recording because that's the other thing is it's not like they're taking the digital recording necessarily and putting it on vinyl and trying to like transplant it. It's coming from the master press, which we'll talk about maybe now how they how they make those. Um, so it is cool. I think it's just another way to kind of consume music, which is awesome. Well, I guess we should talk a little bit about how uh, vinyl is actually made. So uh, the pressing process for vinyl really begins in the studio. Is it uh, that urgent? What? Is it that urgent? What? The, the pressing process. Oh. <laughs> I'm like, is what urgent? I didn't say anything. Yeah, the it, the urgent process of pressing vinyl begins in the studio. So to make a vinyl today, a musician will record their song. Again, usually digitally, though, could be on tape. This master tape or high-quality file gets sent to... So today, I what I was just saying before is not entirely true. Today, a lot of digital recordings are being pressed to vinyl. This gets sent to an audio engineer who performs a final mix and a master on the track. The engineer then connects it to a cutting amp, which connects it to a cutting link. So it basically looks like a big turntable or a record player, except instead of the needle, the arm has a ruby chisel attached to it. I have no idea why they use ruby, maybe because it's durable or something like that. Um, and so then as the song plays, the ruby vibrates, creates a very specific groove in the lacquer, uh, in the lacquer disc, where each cut signifies a specific sound wave. So the ruby and the device are sensitive to any kind of vibration happening in the environment around it. So apparently you can actually yell very loudly near the ruby when it's running and it may get picked up in the engraving. So you could just like shout out your name or whatever and just ruin the whole thing. A disc can actually hold up to 2,600 feet of lines in it, which is a lot more than I would have guessed actually. And the first lacquer disc is called the mother disc or the master disc. This can be used to make a master stamp. And a master stamp can press about 100,000 records. So you, you need to kind of keep going back to make a copy of the master stamp. You can press 100,000 records, and then it kind of deteriorates, I think, basically. Why? Why does it deteriorate? Yeah. Um, I think it's because of the force that they have to apply to actually stamp the vinyl. And Interesting. the temperature that they, because I think they need to get it at kind of a sweet spot where it's, we were talking about like how malleable it is before. But they do actually wash um, the disc and spray it with a chloride um, film. And then they layer it with silver, which gets into the grooves and hardens with a nickel bath. So it sort of helps preserve it. Because ultimately that master um, or the mother disc is, if that one gets destroyed, you're kind of out of luck, I guess, basically. But in terms of actually making the vinyl, that's a little bit different. So they use um, polyvinyl chloride pellets that are melted in a hopper, and they make a small biscuit, basically. Like, literally, it looks like a, like a biscuit that gets pressed. The press first applies a label, and that helps keep it from warping. 
and they actually have to apply over 60 tons of force to flatten it, um, which is pretty crazy. They can then um, shave off any of the excess and reuse it, so that's that's pretty cool. Um, and then they use the press to imprint the record grooves onto the record. And then there's a really important QC step, and the QCer has to just listen to all of the records for warping issues um, or just problems during the pressing process that may represent a quality issue. And you kind of need to figure that out quickly because I think in theory, if it happens to one of them, very well could happen to many of them. So you got to kind of catch it quickly. Kind of reminded me of, um, have you been to the Martin Guitar Factory? I forget. I did not go, no. You didn't go. Um, Martin Guitar Factory is in Pennsylvania. I forget which town. Um, But when they build the guitars, there's just a room full of people and it's incredible to see. It's just a bunch of people sitting at like workbenches, stringing up all the guitars, putting them roughly in tune and playing them to make sure that they actually sound good. And this is after like weeks of building these guitars. And like, that's their job. They, they just have to sit there and like make sure it's they sound good. It's actually pretty cool. Yeah, it is. Um, it, although I th- I'm sure it's like being an ice cream taster where it's like, it's not as great as it seems because you're not really eating ice cream all the time. Hmm. You're just sort of tasting it. I wonder how often these QCers for for the vinyls, and I'm I'm picturing like one guy in a room with no windows. That's basically what it is. Yeah. Like literally exactly. When a band intentionally does something new or innovative or like they scream or something. that's interesting. Right. Does the QCer be like, oh, this is awful. Like we we did something wrong. Right. Like do you QC just one band or record at a time and then... Uh, you have the reference material? Like, how do you know what correct is? I, I, I think some of the warping and stuff is pretty easy to, like, your average listener to hear. Um, or, like, if there's a weird pitch problem because of whatever, the grooves are the wrong size or something. Um, that's interesting. I don't know. Yeah, I wonder I wonder how much input the QCer has on the final product. <laughs> it's like, well, I could hear it, but it stinks. <laughs> this band is awful. <laughs> so, anyway, that's kind of how... Uh, that's very interesting, actually. Um, yeah, I, I, I did not know how that, that pressing process worked. So we talked about vinyl. We talked about cassette tapes kind of in the wrong order, but that's okay. They do overlap quite a bit, so they're kind of part of the same time frame. Should we move on to digital music and CDs and that whole world? Or did I miss uh, something? Yeah, no, I think that's... The, the CD is... I mean, there are a couple other things, like the... Uh, Sabamobile Mobile uh, in 1964, uh, which did not take off because how could we forget that one? <laughs> e- each cartridge would have been like a hundred bucks, so oh, wow. people are not buying these things. You had the the four track, which I think at least our generation we we definitely know what vinyls are, but you know some, the generation above us often asks, "Do you know what an eight track is?" Right? Yeah, I know what an eight track is. I've never heard of a four track before. Four track is the precursor to an eight track. Was called a stereo pack. Was really used for like commercial radio broadcasting, like like oh, okay. uh, like jingles, uh, like one eight seven seven cards for kids. That 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 would go on a four track. Gotcha. Um, and it fell by the wayside because of the introduction of the eight track, which could hold twice as much and for basically the same price. Why would you not want the eight track? That makes um, sense. And then came the play tape in uh, nineteen sixty six. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was a two-track system that was uh, initially super, super popular, but because the eight-track was so much cheaper, 
um, and could actually hold more content. Um, play tape sort of fell off. And then the El Cassette in 1976, which was one of uh, Sony Panasonic's um, inventions, mm-hmm. which was, uh, it was, it was really good. It was sort of a, a compromise between the uh, like really high-end quality of reel-to-reel tape systems um, and the convenience of these very portable cassette tapes. But they were bigger and a little bit more expensive, and cassette tapes were doing so well, uh, you know, on the market that yeah. these L cassettes just kind of just kind of fell off. Um, and I then mean, some of it is just how easily you can translate these new formats into exactly like if you already bought your whatever you know eight track it's like are you really going to go buy another device just because something came out like a year later like probably not well Um, it depends on how much better it is i mean people go through iphones they get a new iphone every year that's true Um, they're not that different in terms of technology um but in terms of audio quality or, or, you know, uh, audio media, there's no difference between an iPhone 4 and an iPhone 5. Right. Um, so here is, so we're at you know, 1979, and just as an honorable mention, I will throw in the Walkman, the original Walkman invented by Sony. And this Love does it. not represent a breakthrough technology at all, but it was very innovative. breakthrough. E- exactly. A little anecdotal story. Uh, It was created because one of the co-founders of Sony, a guy named Masuru Ibuka, uh, simply wanted to be able to listen to music on long flights. So he he, he wanted something that could be on a plane and wouldn't bother anyone else. That's awesome. So we get the walk. Innovation is born out of necessity. Absolutely. And then before we get to the CDs... The one very important thing that that was introduced before the compact disc, can you name it? Uh, it's a media storage device that you've definitely used, probably in elementary school. Before the CD? Before the compact disc. It wasn't compact, it was floppy. Oh, yeah. The 3.5-inch floppy disc oh, introduced yeah. in 1982 and invented by IBM. Um, I never think of them as being a music storage device. It, they weren't intended to be because IBM wasn't in the music scene, but it right. was a device that actually was was picked up pretty instantly by a lot of the record labels because they were they were getting everywhere and they were so so cheap and the quality on them was was really good. Uh, Cindy Lauper, Brian Eno, Michael Jackson, the the they were all like in the rollout of music being recorded or being um, dispersed on floppy disks. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, I always thought like computer games or, you know, Microsoft. Yeah, just like installation. Word files. Right. That's what you put on a floppy disk. Right. Uh, But yeah, floppy disks, they they do make my list of a storage device. No, I think that's fair. Yeah. And then 1982, we get the CD, the compact disk by Sony and Philips. Interesting... uh about the CDs is they came onto the scene relatively recently. I guess it was 40 years ago, which is crazy. Um, But they took over pretty quickly as like the most efficient and sort of most popular storage medium. Do you know what the biggest selling CD of all time was? I have no idea. It was the 1976 Eagles Greatest Hits album. It sold 38 million copies. Wow. Which is a lot. 
I mean, in today's scale, we think about, you know, millions and hundreds of millions and even billions of streams. So it's like, what's the big wow. deal? But like people buying a physical That's interesting. Uh, album. And the Eagles are pretty good. But I never would have guessed that they were uh, no, not, not that the biggest much. selling. Do you know what the first um, record released in CD form was? No. The Visitors by ABBA. Really? Oh, yeah. That's interesting. And I, by oh, yeah, I mean, I didn't know that either. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And I also remember um, reading something somewhere, and I'm going to totally butcher it, but it was something like in the 90s, maybe it was like 1998, 1999. I think more than half of the CDs in circulation were AOL installation discs. I remember reading something like that. That, I believe. I don't know what year, but I'm positive that it was true at some point. <laughs> so... Um, Another interesting CD fact for you. If all the CDs in the world were piled up, they would circle the earth six times. And yeah, like I mentioned, they took over really quickly. By the time you got to the 90s, it would have been kind of rare to buy a cassette tape or a vinyl. I only remember buying CDs like when I was old enough to care about music, really. Um, my parents definitely had cassettes. And I definitely remember like when you know we were born, like cars still having cassette players, but... By the time you get to like 2000, um, I don't really remember many cars having cassette players. Maybe like early 2000s, right? Like 2004, 2005. But they at were some definitely point, being phased out. At yeah, at some point then. the CD player just became the dominant uh, you know, mode there. Um, and as you said, so it was ultimately um, conceptualized by someone named James Russell in 1966. He filed a patent uh, for a combination of lasers... So you're bringing it back to lasers like our last episode and a digital recording system. <laughs> thank you for the air quotes <laughs> that would eventually be purchased by Philips and Sony in the 1980s. Like you said. So, um, what weird little factoid about CDs, please. um, the audio storage capacity of a standard CD is exactly 74 minutes. Why? Never going to come up with this. Um, because Sony insisted that a single disc should be able to fit the longest musical performance that was available at the time. Which oh, really? Which was Beethoven's Ninth, which clocks in at 74 minutes. Jeez, that's long. Did they have like an intermission or something? When I have no idea. To be performed? I don't think I've ever... I've listened to it. I've definitely never listened to it continuously. No. Um, well, I knew that it was 74 minutes. That's interesting. It's also roughly 783 uh, megabytes that you can store on the disc. And in terms of their structure, um, CDs are about 1.2 millimeters thick. The bottom and biggest layer is a polycarbonate plastic. Then there's a layer of aluminum, acrylic, and then the label. So if you're kind of going from the side that you read to the side that you read with your eyes. The first read was like with the laser. As I started saying that, that didn't make any sense. Um, CDs also have a spiral track of data, much like a record. This circles from the inside to the outside, which is actually a cool design feature because it helps allow CDs to be smaller than 4.8 inches, which is standard if desired. Um, maybe you've played uh, GameCube before. You notice that their discs are mini discs. They're a lot smaller. Invented so, in 1992, also by Sony. Really? Didn't know that. Yeah, so you can basically make... I mean, what's the biggest CD ever made? Can you make a CD that's like five feet in diameter? I'm sure you can make one, but you also need to make something that reads it. It seems like a laser that you probably can't purchase. 
so that's right. So CDs have a spiral track of data and the data tracks are incredibly small. They're about 0.5 microns wide with 1.6 microns separating each track. There are then a series of elongated bumps that make up the track. So you can kind of picture like uh, lane dividers on a highway, but they're not necessarily equal in size or length. These are about 0.5 microns wide and a minimum of 0.83 microns long and 125 nanometers high, a billionth of a meter. So they are very, very tiny, right? I mean, if you look at a CD, you can't see anything. It just looks shiny. They are pits from the aluminum, the label side, but from the polycarbonate side, the laser reads them like they're bumps. And the total length of this spiral track can be as long as 3.5 miles, um, which is insane. So compare that to, what was it, 2,600 feet for, uh, for vinyl? It's significantly longer, um, which is crazy. I think one interesting um, tidbit I guess is that like when when I think of a, a a record of vinyl, it's black, right? right? Typically, that like that that is the uh, now they're all sorts of different colors, right? But yeah, but no, I mean right. they, they were a darker color, and the color didn't matter. I guess that's the point. Whereas, right. and you said this about CDs, they are shiny, yeah, right? Because CDs are read by lasers, and vinyls are not. So yeah. the, the shininess is actually a engineered design because of what is doing the reading. Whereas right. the color on a vinyl doesn't matter at all because the thing doing the reading couldn't care less about what color it is. No, you're right. That's actually a good observation. And um, we don't need to get too into how CDs actually work because it's a pretty familiar concept. Um, you use a 780 nanometer uh, wavelength laser. You focus it on a single track at a time on the disc. And as the disc spins, the laser can read the full content of the disc. It can look at the slightly different wavelengths that are reflected um, back from the CD based on those little grooves, um, which tells it about what uh, data the CD is storing. And if it's sound, if it's meant to be like an audio file or, uh, or specifically it's, it's an audio CD, um, then it can kind of convert it and kind of put it back out the way that it came in. So it's pretty cool. It, again, like it's the same idea of you're imprinting that phys that sound into some physical medium and you're able to kind of deconstruct it with the same algorithm that you kind of put it in with. Mm -hmm basically yeah so five years after the original walkman right the the cassette tape walkman mm -hmm. so 1984 sony also released the portable cd player called the Discman, which was basically a cd nice. walkman so they released the d50 the Discman 50 um and this is i mean i didn't have that exact model but that was at least in my lifetime that was the first thing that i owned personally that played back music it was a personal portable cd player oh yeah i used to take it on the bus with me do you know how they made cds um skip proof did they just prevent them from bouncing around while they were attached because that was like a big thing with cds is if you were in the car and you like were hitting bumps in the road basically or even like in some cases if you were walking or trying to go for a run with it the bouncing vibrations would cause the CD to kind of wobble a little bit. And since the playback, the reading is based on the wavelength of the light coming back, we talked about changing wavelengths of light and distance light travels in our last episode. Uh, you get a different sound back, or in some cases you read the same thing multiple times, so you get weird skipping. And that also made CDs very sensitive to scratches 
or any kind of damage to that reflective surface that would screw up the tracks. Uh, it would make it so that you had some songs on your CD, like if you had burned copies of a CD from a friend, you you couldn't even listen to certain songs. You had to kind of skip over certain sections of the CD, which um, fortunately isn't really a problem today with digital music. Right. And to that end, uh, we, we have now entered, uh, or really for the past couple of years, we have entered the digital era. Right? Let's talk so that's about really it. 1975 onward, right? So when you have uh, you know the Walkman, floppy disks, CDs, um, CD-ROMs, CD-RWs, um, all the R's and O's and M's and W's stood for right. different things that you were able to do with the CD, like read-only memory, things like that. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about what digital music actually means as opposed to analog music? Yes, I will do my best. So digital music works by storing and manipulating sound as a series of discrete numbers, each of which represents specific air pressure at certain times, basically a a representation of the waveform of the sound. And that changes based on the sound waves that are kind of moving through the air. So the conversion of sound to digital happens through an analog to digital converter which is very aptly named, or an ADC. Each number uh, that the ADC measures is a sample, and the samples uh, taken per second is the sample rate. Um, The more samples that you take, the more basically resolutely you can capture the true um, signal, since the analog signal is continuous, and and digital signals are discrete or non-continuous. So you need to sample at a sufficiently fast rate to get as close to capturing that continuous signal in a discrete way. You can't ever really achieve it entirely, but it's sort of like pixel resolution. Like you get to a point where to your brain, it's sort of indistinguishable, even if like technically, mathematically, it's a little bit different. You can kind of think of the sampling rate as, um, you know, imagine, here's kind of sort of a weird example. Imagine you're trying to ride a bicycle down a staircase um, of a, sort of a set height or, or length. As we all do. Right. We've all been there. If there were only like five steps, you would feel every bump, right? Those bumps would be big and far apart. And, you know, I'm just imagining going down like, I don't know, 15 foot staircase. If there were like only five steps, you'd really feel it. But if you increase your sampling rate in this example, you add more and more individual steps. It eventually becomes almost smooth. And what are you, Aztec? So- yeah. <laughs> what? 15 feet, there are five steps. I don't know. I'm just giving an example, okay? <laughs> Can you imagine walking up that staircase? <laughs> well, you have to hoist yourself up and then spin around and sit. Um, yeah, so basically it almost gets smooth like a flat surface. And that's basically what happens. So, you know, if you think about an analog signal as like a sine wave, like this rolling hill of a waveform, um, discrete or digital audio is kind of taking that same shape but it's approximated by these little square waves these little like steps like literal physical steps so interestingly analog signals can deteriorate and are more sensitive to noise during transmission of the signal since digital signals are discrete they can be somewhat noise immune and avoid deterioration and they have direct reproducibility because of the representation of the signal it's by discrete numbers so this helps you achieve higher fidelity Um, when you're actually capturing the original sound. Interesting question, though. How do you pick a sampling rate? The sampling rate really depends on the frequency of the sound you're trying to capture, which I never really thought of, but it actually kind of makes sense. 
If the sampling rate is lower than the frequency of the sound, you could actually miss entire cycles of the waveform, which is an effect called aliasing. If the rate were the same as the frequency of the sound you're trying to capture, you'd get a straight line for a signal because you'd always be kind of checking in on the wave at the exact same point in its cycle, which is also kind of cool. Also, to make matters more complicated, music uses a diverse range of frequencies, so we need to sample in a way that we account for all of them, the low frequencies and the high ones. There is a solution to this, a mathematical solution called the Nyquist theorem, that says that we need to sample greater than twice the frequency measured for accurate results. So for sound, we should be sampling the signal at least 40,000 times per second. But this is the lowest allowable rate. Really, we should go higher when possible. So today, standard sampling rate for modern recordings is about 44.1 kilohertz or 44,100 hertz. Um, and one last thing I'll mention about digital, uh, digital media that's also interesting is that there's some filtering that has to happen to get rid of some of these aliasing effects and some unsuspecting um, ultrasonic content. Um, so basically just because of the way it gets recorded, you get like electrical noise in the signal and you have to kind of filter that out. Um, and you also need to unpack it the same way that you record it. So if you sample differently, uh, when you play it back versus record it, you get pitch changes and jitter effects and all this kind of funkiness. So I mean, to me, by the time I got to the digital music stage, it was like, this is really consistent with everything else, which is it's got to come out the same way that it goes in. However, your whatever your conditions are, whatever your rotation speed, whatever your sampling rate, all these different things, you have to reproduce that in the same way or else you just won't get anything consistent. But um, I don't know. I mean, digital music today, it's huge. Streaming platforms, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's the way of life today. Yeah, so streaming platforms, I was actually really shocked to learn that um, they are, or it is widely regarded to have started in 1993. Really? Um, and it was invented by the Internet Underground Music Archive, the IUMA, um, which is sort of the, the first recognized online music platform. And it was really supposed to, it was like sort of geared towards unsigned artists and bands oh, that's that cool. were able to upload stream songs. Um, and it was you know, probably 10 years ahead of its time. Um, and it was really restricted and limited by internet speeds, right? Because <laughs> yeah. if you remember back then, everything was dial-up. It took you know five minutes to even get online. If you wanted to download a song on dial-up, I let alone minutes, listen to it real time when you didn't actually right, have the file. Exactly, wasn't impossible. right? Was so impossible. this was really for um, you know artists and bands that would somehow share a song with. Uh, you know, like, like scouts or, or um, label scouts, things like that. Right. Um, but pretty close thereafter came Napster. Um, and we're not doing a segment on Napster, but this was basically the uh, file sharing system that allowed people to rip music illegally. Um, it was... We should uh, use a Metallica song in this episode just to <laughs> thumb our noses God. at them. Metallica <laughs> was um, very famously part of the lawsuit against Napster because Napster wasn't basically compensating artists. And just to jump in, there were a lot of clones of Napster that followed in um, other years. There was Aimster, there was Morpheus Media, a lot of people our age remember LimeWire, Lime file sharing Aries, services, Aries, yep. Zorius, there, there were a whole bunch of them. And it was sort of like, you know, you had to use one and in hindsight, 
probably the worst thing for internet security ever. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and, and that's just, you know, like file sharing systems. Then there were right. things like BitTorrents and things like, like it was, oh, sure. it got complicated. Um, Napster was forced to shut down in, I think it was 2001. Um, Do you know who founded Napster? Justin Timberlake. Exactly. It was Sean Parker, <laughs> who was also uh, in the movie The Social Network. He was one of the co-founders of Facebook. Sort of. You should watch sort the movie. Of. It's a great um, movie. It, very good movie. But nowadays, when you think of streaming services, uh, like you, you have iTunes, you have Pandora Radio, you have Spotify, you, you have all of these very, very mainstream. Some of them are, you know, pay to listen. Some of them are like they, they follow that freemium. Um, right. Uh, you can models. listen, but there's ads. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so it, it's certainly gotten more complicated, and the economics of it have. Uh, become very interesting. Uh, again, that's maybe a conversation for a different time. But 1993, music streaming started. I was I was very shocked by that. And then, I think the last one that I have to mention is in 1997, the advent of the digital audio player, which stored music that was on these small portable hard drives, right? Sort of marked this big revolution hmm. in the music business, right? Um, so Kane Kramer uh, was this British scientist way back in like 1979 or something. Uh, he was the first to invent a working prototype of this idea, uh, but it was Seihan Information Systems in South Korea hmm. um, that was actually able to first launch the first commercially available model called the MPMON. In 1997, this had two models. It was the 32 megabyte or the 64 megabyte, right? So it could hold either six or 12 songs. That was pretty much it. I never heard of it. Um, that was the first real MP3 player that was available to the public, right? And then after that, when, when it became popular, um, and the, the music scene in South Korea is actually pretty big um, and has been for a long time. It's not just modern K-pop that's huge. But after the MPMon came, like, the iPod, right, or the Zune, or things oh, yeah. like that. And when, when Apple latched on with the iPod, uh, not only did the devices sort of uh, explode into, into, not physically erupt, but um, <laughs> they, they, there was a, a host of different ones you could choose from, right? There was the original, there was the nano, there was the mini, there was the, you know, the redesigned nano, there was the video. And there was the U2 the, one. Right. Like there were a whole bunch of them. Um, and there were a bunch of rival companies that had their own units and whatnot. But now that everything is sort of condensed onto a single phone, not many uh, consumers have both a smartphone and a separate PMP, a portable music player. Yeah. Um, so it's all sort of condensed in one. And nowadays we're really just talking about phones. Some people stream. I, I tend to not, I like having digital copies of my music on my phone. Yeah. Um, I've moved away from that almost entirely except for just old music that I have on my computer. And it is a weird shift because back when, like, you know, when the first, um, iPods were coming out, it was like, whoa, you can put 250 songs on here. Like, that's insane. And it was insane. Now it's like you can put 100 songs on your Apple Watch if you want for when you go work out or something. But yeah, today, I mean, I'm, I mostly just stream. And I think a lot of people do. Um, there's the argument about preferring 
phys- you know, sort of the actual copies of the songs. But apparently you never really actually own the songs. You just sort of own the right to listen to them, which is kind of weird too. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's certainly very strange. And it's evolved. And I'm kind of curious where it's going to go from here. You know, it's hard to imagine. I mean, there's a lot of people out there who, you know, there's a reason they make the big bucks because they do imagine and create these new things. But I don't know. The, the only thing I can think is more of an integrated, like wearables kind of way of experiencing music and hearing music that maybe doesn't even involve um, the, some of the devices that we think of today in terms of playback. Like, do you remember the um, Google Glass? Oh, yeah. So I kind of forget the specifics, but the speaker, there wasn't actually a speaker on that because it would have been really annoying if it's like you were b- trying to talk. Bone induction. Bone induction. Means, it would right? just yeah. vibrate in such a way that it would vibrate the bones in your skull, basically. So I, I actually have some waterproof headphones that are bone induction. That's so um, cool. I was actually blown away it's incredible. by the quality of them. It was. It's really interesting. And it's weird because the sound doesn't really exist. Right. Like you're not really converting it back to a sound wave in the air you're just sort of creating right when you the, take you're them creating the off the of reaction. your head you can't hear it. there there is nothing to hear it's so cool it's very odd yeah so um, i imagine something like that with like wearables or some more of like an integrated experience with listening like um, an embedded chip in your cerebellum or something imagine the ads that you would get <laughs> God, it's kind of dystopian that'd be interesting well i think that's kind of all we have on uh on music media, hopefully you learn something. Hopefully you go, you know, dig up that old iPod or Walkman and walk down memory lane or maybe go purchase a vinyl from your favorite band. And um, thanks for listening in 2022. I think we will be back better than ever in 2023. And uh, looking forward to it. Thanks for listening.